hot. Mm -hmm. Wow. I'm excited. Did you see that new award? I did. It is so exciting. Thank you, guys. It's so exciting. That is really, really wonderful. Yeah, so the science fair is coming, mm -hmm. and I'm very excited. I'm thinking about re-enrolling in the Sullis Academy so I can have <laughs> So the kids have a question for you. The kids or mm -hmm. you? The kids. Oh, okay. The kids, what do they want to know? They want to know why they have to have a hypothesis. This is the scientific process. Well, the hippopotamus... <laughs> yeah. What? What do you What's call it again? The hypothesis. The hippopotamus. Okay. Well, it's, it's really part of the scientific method. Yeah. And the scientific method is a strategy for inventioneering, for discovering new things that really works. The first thing you've got to do is get your question, something you want to know. Mm -hmm. And that's easy, like your question should be, is she really hot? You know. I mean, <laughs> There's what a if, lot that goes that, into that the could name. be a that's question, <laughs> because hot is temperature. That's right. Yeah, okay. So <laughs> when you get a question that you want to answer, then... The scientific method suggests you should come up with a hypothesis. That's where you try to figure out what the answer is. And that step is very important because it focuses you on being able to achieve the goal. It helps you be able to push the clouds out of the way and start to get an idea of what's going on, which is important for the next step where you start figuring out your experiments to see if your hypothesis is right. Now, in my case, I don't think she's that hot. No, I'm not. I mean, she's very, you know what I mean. <laughs> Can I start over? Mm -hmm, let's do. Hippopotamus. <laughs> um, uh, but I'm just saying. So my hypothesis is that her temperature is probably in the alien range of mm. 98.7 degrees, <laughs> something like that. We're okay. all aliens, aren't we? You get what I mean? Yeah, I do. <laughs> Did you see the way Tobias slipped in Leonardo da Vinci's to boldly go where no man has gone before? That did you see that? I did see that. Where no man has gone before. Hold that thought. It's held. Okay. Long term, short term. <laughs> Same thing. <laughs> okay, good. So, where no man has gone before. It's got to be a key, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm going to figure this out. My hypothesis, now save it. All right, but moving on. <clears throat> Leonardo da Vinci invented Star Trek? That's what it looks like. That's what it looked like, didn't it? It or is Star exciting, Wars. though. It is amazing, though, how many things that man did do. He was really amazing. Leonardo da Vinci, I think he's one of the great, great heroes. And I need to have an interactive vote tonight because it's been proposed that we make Leonardo da Vinci one of the distinguished fellows of the International Academy of Science. And so I'm asking you all to vote. Leonardo, thumbs up. Yes, he should be a member or thumbs down. You can't do it here. You have oh. to do it live. <laughs> That's why we have well, now computers. Now you know my vote, don't you? <laughs> Well, I vote yes. It's a woman's prerogative. Mm -hmm, it is. To you know I like him. Mm -hmm. Over and over. <laughs> Where no man has gone before. Uh -huh. Or okay? woman. Oh. Mm. <laughs> is okay, that what you good. want me to say? So, <laughs> hypothesis. I think they get it. I th 
So that's where you start trying to figure out what you think the answer is. Mm -hmm. And very often, that's what enables you to come up with the experiment to find out. So science fair. You really should do it. The science fair impacted my career so very much. And this year, we're going to have the biggest science fair ever. This wonderful new medal is going to make a, a huge difference. So and I'm pretty excited about it. And the medal is being named in honor of Willis Hawkins. Uh, Willis Hawkins is one of, like the good girl said, one of the <laughs> four founders of the International Academy of Science. And <clears throat> as the only person here today that can actually remember the last time the Green Comet came around, <laughs> I'm very happy to announce that I knew Willis Hawkins very, very well before he passed on. And boy, could I tell you some stories about that guy, if you insist? Yes, you do. Insist? Okay. Tell us. Well, they said that he was involved when he was the director of research at the Army in the development of this amazing Abrams tank. And it is amazing. It's saved many, many lives. It's a, an amazing machine. And I know because I've seen it up close and personal. Yeah? Yes, have I you? have. Yes, I saw it. And oh. in fact, I actually climbed inside the tank. Wait a minute. Yes, Did you I really? actually got to do that. I was there. <laughs> And they said, do you want to? And I said, absolutely. And so I did. And that's, you know, that's what it is. <laughs> but off the record, <laughs> she wanted to climb in it, too. She was there. Mm -hmm, I and uh, she said, well, can I climb in? Well, you just looked at you me. Can't, <laughs> you can't really quite understand this whole story until you know a little more about the tank. You see, there are three guys that fit inside, they all have their different missions, the commander and there's the, anyway. And then the fourth person is the driver. And the driver doesn't go inside with the others, he has to go up in a little door up in the front of the tank and down in. And you know they've got this big turret with the big gun on it that they do, that they turn? Well, if the turret is pointed straight forward, you can't open the door to get in where the driver goes. You have to turn the gun, and they had to make it real low because it makes it a lot more safe. And then you can open it and you get in. So I climbed in there, and it was quite a feat to climb in. Do you want to see a video? <laughs> Tina, roll a video showing them what this tank's like. Yeah, there it is, there it is. Now look, see that little teeny hole? And you open it up and you climb in there yeah, and you sit right there if you're going to be the driver. You can't even sit up straight. So I got in there. It was really neat. I got out. I'm listening. <laughs> and she said, well, can I try it? And I hesitate to tell him why the guy just froze. Well, it's a little more difficult in the skirt and heels. <laughs> <laughs> Did but you I did. really? I did. Come on. All right. It just shows. No Nothing man is left behind. <laughs> That's right. No man is no left man. behind. No one man. Like she said, anyway, it's really an amazing, amazing piece of technology, mm -hmm. and he did that. That was long before I knew Willis. At the time that he was working on that, I think I was in the fifth grade. So he was a little bit older than I was. 
But as I grew older and became interested in hydrogen for the science fair and built my hydrogen science fair car project, et cetera, et cetera, got more interested in hydrogen, went to university, started a company called Billings Energy Research Corporation to develop a hydrogen energy economy. That's when I got to meet Willis Hawkins. And you know, there's a little interesting story of that. The name of my company was the Billings Energy Research Corporation. When I formed my company, I, I wanted to call it the Hydrogen Energy Company, but they couldn't because someone else already had that name. So then I call it, okay, the Billings, no, I, excuse me, I, I called it the Energy Research Corporation. And we got that name and we started. And then a very large company had their attorney write me a nice letter saying, that's our name. So we added the Billings on. <laughs> and so well, our company name. became known as Burke, B-E-R-C, Burke. <laughs> yeah, but anyway, it was in that uh, category that I read a very interesting uh, technical paper written by a Dr. Witkowski of NASA. And this guy worked in their research center up in Ohio, excuse me, yeah, Ohio, and what he said is that if you really, really cool the leading edge, the front edge of the wing of an airplane, it makes the air go over it very different. Now some of you guys that have been designing airplanes already know this, but when an airplane is flying, it's going through the air, and the air goes up over the top of the wing and down under the wing, because the wing pushes through the air, and they make the wing so the trip that the air takes over the top is longer than for the air that goes underneath. That creates a low pressure, and that's where you get the lift, okay? But as the air comes off the back of a wing, it spins, causes turbulence, and the turbulence comes off in vortices that go down to the ground. Well, spinning all that air behind the wing wastes half of the fuel in an airplane. If you could get rid of that spinning air, you could go twice as far, almost twice as far, on a, a tank of fuel, which would be really a great thing. And so according to Dr. Witkowski, if you could cool the leading edge, the front edge of the wing, to really cool temperatures like 350 degrees below zero, it's really cold, that then the air would go up over, down the back, and you wouldn't get that spin. Uh, it's what engineers call laminar flow, because it wouldn't have that spin. And the airplane would be able to go twice as far. Well, he did some studies to see if that would really work. He did his studies in a computer model and said it would. And so I've been thinking, we really need to run airplanes on hydrogen. When a, a big jumbo jet is down at the end of the runway ready to take off to go on a long flight, if it's fully loaded up with fuel, one-third of the weight of the airplane at takeoff is jet fuel. When you think about that, all of the people, all of the engines, the wheels, everything on the airplane, all of the ladies' luggage, <laughs> everything, <laughs> One-third of the total weight of the airplane is in the fuel tanks. If you could lighten that weight to half, or if you could make it go twice as far on half as much fuel, 
it would really be a big improvement. Plus, one of the biggest costs of, of flying an airplane is the cost of fuel. If you could save half of it, it would be amazing. Or maybe you could even go a little faster with the same engines. And so I became very interested in developing hydrogen airplanes. And I started writing papers, I started giving talks, and one day, after I gave a, a talk at an engineering conference, this very distinguished gentleman came up to me and introduced himself to say, hi, I'm Willis Hawkins. I really liked what you said. And we hit it off immediately. What he didn't tell me was that he was the president of Lockheed. <laughs> if he had it, I could. <coughs> but he didn't. And so we started becoming friendly. He says, do you think this really can be done? And I said, I think so. So he assigned one of his engineers to start working on a project of designing a hydrogen-fueled airplane, hydrogen jet. And eventually, there was a whole team that was developed. And I used to have a really neat book that told all about all of these designs, the airplanes, where to put the fuel tanks, all that stuff. You but I can't, I can't find my book. Did he misplace it? I loaned it to Joshua <laughs> once upon a time. And, and then I remember, you know what? He never gave that back. So on my way here tonight, I was going to show it to you. And I went past his office, and he has it on display. <laughs> I figured, OK. Now, now, that book was signed to me. But guess it's his now. <laughs> anyway. I bet you'll have it tomorrow. But the story, no, no. I, I'm, I'm not an Indian giver. But anyway, it was really exciting because we really found out we could build these airplanes. So Willis and I had a big meeting, and uh, we decided what we need to do is a study to see if jet engines can run well on hydrogen, what you'd have to do to convert them. So he called the big guy at Pratt Whitney. Pratt Whitney makes jet engines. He said, hey, we'd like to do a study to convert a jet turbine to run on hydrogen. Would you, would you help us? So they did. They converted a jet, they put it in their test chamber, and they ran it for many, many, many hours. And they said, it runs pretty. It runs better than on jet fuel. So that's a good sign. So, so now we needed to put it in an airplane. And we wanted an airplane that would fly really high and really fast. Now, when you cool the leading edge of a wing to a temperature 350 degrees below zero, it's so cold that if there's rain, it'll form ice immediately. And so what you do is you don't cool the wing until you get up above the weather, up at altitude. And so we thought for the prototype, it'd be nice if it could fly really high. And Willis says, I think I know just the plane. And I said, OK. And remember, he's the president of Lockheed, California. And so I said, you know, um, what we need is we need to have a wing tore apart so I can see inside how to design the tank. Because you see, how do you cool a wing that cold? And when you're flying, the air's trying to heat it back up. How do you keep it that cold? And my idea was we'd put liquid hydrogen in the plane, which is already 422 degrees below zero, very cold, would run it through the leading edge to cool it on the way to the jet engines when we burn it. So he said, well, uh, it's pretty hard 
to tear a wing apart. He said, well, I got to see it. He said, I got drawings. He said, well, it should be nice to see it. <laughs> and he said, give me a few days. And I, I found out later he needed a few days to see if he could get top secret clearance for <laughs> R, <laughs> which I imagine was pretty hard to do, but he got it. And then he had me fly out to Southern California where he took me to a place called the Skunk Works. Mm -hmm. Skunk Works is part of Lockheed where they make some of the most amazing airplanes. And right then, they were still building an airplane called the SR-71 or the Blackbird. And they had them at every stage on the assembly line. So he took me in there and said, okay, what do you want to see? It's open. And so I went through and looked at all of the You're models coming down. It was pretty amazing. <laughs> the SR-71 is a plane that, that flies so fast that we could send it to any place in the world where we need to get some pictures and make sure people were following the treaties. And if they decided that they didn't like us flying over the country, they could shoot missiles at us, but they couldn't hit us because we were so fast and so high. And some of you remember we started out with the U-2. The U-2 plane was higher and faster than anyone could knock down, and then all of a sudden it was doing a little uh, photographing trip going across the Soviet Union, and they developed a special missile that was able to hit it and knock it down. The pilot parachuted down, and it was really a big embarrassing thing. But then the SR-71 or the Blackbird was created, and it was so much higher and so much faster that no one was ever able to knock it down. This is what it looks like, the SR-71. It goes so fast that it gets so hot that it stretches a couple feet in length when it's flying, and it's made out of a wonderful metal called titanium to give it the strength at high temperature. So there is the Blackbird. And if you want to know what the cockpit looks like, here is Willis Hawkins in the cockpit of an SR-71. That's pretty fun. That is the dude. Now, I have to tell you another story about this guy. Um, when we went to look at the airplane, it turned out to be kind of an awkward moment for him because he was having a, uh, a heart condition. And they took him in for a, a check and put him on one of these EKGs that measures how your heart's doing and found out he needed a quadruple bypass. Bypass surgeries where they go in and they put in some new blood vessels to get more blood to your heart. Usually they take them out of your leg where they got nice big pretty vessels and put them in there. So he went in for bypass, quadruple bypass surgery. So they put all of that in, stitch him back up and our appointment to go through the uh, skunk works to see this airplane was like two and a half weeks after his surgery. So I wondered if maybe his number two guy could show me around. Well, I got to the airport, went out, picked up my bag, and expected to see uh, Dan Brewer, who was the guy that actually wrote the book, and there was Willis. <laughs> Looking good, huh? <laughs> driving the car, and so, Two and a half weeks after quadruple bypass, we're going around LA looking at airplanes. But that's the kind of guy he was. Um, there are so many fun stories that you can tell about a guy like this. Remember, 
we wanted to start this International Academy of Science because we wanted a school that would teach students to be inventioneers. Mm -hmm. uh, we have wonderful scientists doing wonderful basic research, but we wanted to really help a special creative kind of a scientist learn how to bring all of these pieces of technology together and make great things happen. And Willis had this dream at Lockheed. Uh, Sir Jeffrey Pardo, who was the head of the aerospace company over in London, was one of us that came in cahoots to do this. And then the third guy was Dr. Nikolai Tupolev from the Soviet Union, from, from Moscow, from the Tupolev Design Bureau. Now, the Tupolev Design Bureau is pretty famous in that part of the world. They developed the Soviet space shuttle. They did a lot of airlines, a lot of amazing projects. And he was the head of this design bureau. And so I met him when I was giving a hydrogen talk over in Moscow. and We became friends. So we all got together here in Kansas City to launch this new International Academy of Science, which is where IST, Institute of Science and Technology, came from, where Solis came from. Everything is all part of this International Academy of Science. We sat down at a big conference table, and they had never met each other, so I introduced everybody, and we started having a nice discussion about how we're going to make this amazing technology. And about then, Dr. Tupolev, by the way, did, did I show him a picture of Not him? Yet. Oh, you need to see Tupolev. Here he is. Here's Dr. Tupolev. By the way, he gave me a, a display case with 50 different awards that he won for airplanes that he and his team helped develop. Amazing scientist. But we're sitting here having this meeting, and Dr. Tupolev all of a sudden realized that Willis Hawkins is the president of the company that made the Blackbird which happened to fly over his country. And he was given the job of stopping that airplane. And so there was a thing called the Cold War. And all of a sudden, at our initial meeting, the Cold War erupted at the table. And you had no right in this argument. But you know, we just need some pictures. And it got really, really, really heated. And I thought, oh, no. Oh, no. But by the end of the meeting, they were best, best friends. They really, really were. And it shows scientists can agree even if the politics don't work. Well, Dr. Hawkins um, opened up the door for us to be able to, to study this airplane and how we could put the planes in. Then, then what we needed was an airplane we could actually convert. And it turns out that there was one SR-71 that belonged to NASA that was just a research plane. They do it experiments. And so Willis uh, submitted a proposal. And by the way, Willis was on the, the board of NASA. He was also uh, awarded the National Medal of Science and a lot of other things, a great, great scientist. But they put us on the list as an experiment that would be done on that airplane. And about three years went by we're still waiting our turn, and that's when Willis passed away. But uh, the idea of hydrogen airplanes is still an idea whose time is coming. And it's, it's really exciting to think that something like that could be very important for the future of aviation. Uh, I've shared with you before the story about one trip 
when I went to Paris. I went to Paris because a Paris automobile manufacturer named Peugeot had hired me to help them develop a hydrogen car. So I went over there and met with them and I was coming home and I was looking at my flight and I saw, ooh, the Concorde is flying from Paris to Washington, D.C. It was a little more expensive than my flight, <laughs> but I switched. I just had to do it. So <laughs> I took off in the morning from Paris in the Concorde. Remember, the Concorde is a supersonic airline built by the UK and France. And it ran on jet fuel. That's why it's not around anymore, because the jet fuel was too heavy to go at supersonic speeds. But that plane took off and it climbed up to cruise altitude and in the front of the cabin where we were sitting, there was a big meter saying how fast we're going. And it was, you know, Star Trek, you go warp one, warp two, well that's, warp one is the speed of light. Warp two is twice as fast as light, which so far we only know how to do on Star Trek. <laughs> but this was Mach one, which is the speed of sound, and Mach two, and the airplane went up to about Mach 2.3 which is really cruising, like 1,500 miles an hour. We were really cruising across the Atlantic. And, and as we broke the sound barrier, in the airplane, we didn't hear it. Hmm. It just, we just went, I was waiting for it. I thought, oh, this is going to be big. And it just <laughs> went by. And you couldn't even tell we broke the sound barrier. Then we landed in uh, Washington, D.C., and I got out of the airplane and I went to a meeting in downtown Washington, which started before I took off in Paris. <laughs> and the reason that that happened was because this airplane was flying faster than the Earth was turning. So we kept crossing time zones as we headed That's west neat. towards America. And it's just exciting. You think you can do something. Here's a little shot of the airplane. There it is. You notice how the nose is pointing down? That doesn't mean it's not stuck up. It means <laughs> that the airplane, to go slow enough to land, has to be tilted so steep that the pilot can't see the runway. So to make this work, they had to put a little elevator thing that points the nose down so the pilot can see where the runway is to land. It's kind of neat. So, and here's a picture of the Concorde. If you look right here on the ninth row, that's me. <laughs> Are you waving? Can't tell. No? Can you tell? <laughs> anyway, a supersonic airliner must be powered by hydrogen, mm. not by jet fuel. And that's why they really couldn't do it. It was really uneconomical to operate because of all the weight of the jet fuel. Weight is a very, very crucial thing to these speeds. As we start to fuel airplanes with hydrogen, you'll see supersonic transports. And all of a sudden, you'll be able to take off from California and land in New York in, in an hour and 15 minutes or something. And it's really kind of amazing the things that we can do with these technologies. Yes. So my interest in, in hydrogen started in the ninth grade science class. It was prodded on by an opportunity to participate in a thing called a science fair. And because they had it organized, and I thought that sounds really fun, 
I started putting effort into it. My teacher taught me the scientific method, so you gotta have a goal, then you gotta have a hypothesis. My hypothesis is, if you burn hydrogen inside of an engine, there'll be no pollution. And to prove it, I built a hydrogen car, tested the pollution, and there was some. And that meant I had to do some more research to get rid of the nitric oxide, and we've already talked about that, and we'll talk again. But the science fair provided the impetus for me to launch myself on a very, very, very exciting career. When I was in the seventh grade, my uncle, my father's brother, Melvin Billings, was the band director at our school. And he said, Roger, if you will learn to play the French horn, when you get old enough to go to college, they will give you a scholarship. I said, they will? And he says, yes. It's very hard to find a good French horn player. He played the French horn. So he gave me private lessons every Saturday, and I practiced, practiced, practiced. French horn's big, and I'd ride my bike to middle school. And he said, you need to go home and practice. And I say, well, that's pretty hard on the bike. And he says, that, that other student that's going to be competing for the scholarship, I'm sure he's taking his home tonight. <laughs> and I practiced, and I practiced, and I practiced. I got in high school. And I practiced and practiced, and then finally, in my senior year of high school, I won the science fair with my hydrogen car, and they gave me a scholarship. <laughs> so I practiced that for horn for nothing. <laughs> but you know, there's a lot to be said for music. Right. Uh, here at IST, a lot of, of people come, both guys and girls, because they're interested in learning technology, learning science, learning inventioneering, inventioneering, the science of putting science to work. And we don't, we don't have a music program. Oh, brother, Tina, <laughs> Tina, well, you have Tina to. just happened you have to put to. up a picture to prove whether or not I'm, I'm being honest here. Oh, let's show them. Okay, there it is. <laughs> so this is my high school band. And if you look right there in the middle of the guy with the big grin, yeah, and the French horn, you know, that's a horn that goes like this. That's the instrument that sounds so good you have to put your hand in or the girls will chase you so you make it sound not as, no. The girls will chase you? That's spurious. But anyway, I actually love the French horn. It's it has beautiful. the most beautiful sound, yeah. and I think anyone that has a chance to play an instrument should. Music is very, very important. When I got to the university, I had my scholarship from the science fair, but I played the French horn and I loved it, so I tried out for the orchestra. And in the orchestra, they have four French horn parts on almost all the music. First horn, second horn, third horn. And you would compete to see who got to play which chair. Well, since I came in as a freshman, I went automatically to the fourth chair. The first horn is called the solo horn. They get all the real neat parts. And so every week I could challenge. And it took me five weeks to become solo horn at the university which I just loved doing, took a lot of time, and I kind of petered out the second year because I got really involved in learning math and science and engineering. I decided to have five majors all at once. I majored in physics, in chemistry, 
in electrical engineering, chemical engineering, and mechanical engineering. And so my music kind of slowed down, but I still love the French horn. I, and you know, one of the things about playing a musical instrument is it really teaches you to love and appreciate the music. At IST, we do not teach music classes except for a few that are on a cellus. We have some neat uh, music numbers. Who can tell me, when we taught uh, music, we had a band that helped us. Uh, we sure did. Whose, whose band was that? The U.S. Army <laughs> Band. Did you guys know that? Bravo, yeah. We were going to teach a class on all the instruments, and they were going to have our people come in. And, this is a French horn. And they wondered if I could play it a little bit. I says, you know, Acellus courses are good. <laughs> <laughs> so I was the one that got the big idea. I said, why don't we contact the US Army Band and see if they will let us film their guys playing the instruments? And we asked them, and they said yes. And if you haven't taken our music course, what's it called, Matthew? Foundations of Music. If you haven't taken that, you need to. And in there, you'll see these wonderful members of the Army Band, and you'll learn about all the different instruments. But here at IST, we have an underground culture. <laughs> it, it is out of control. No one manages it, nor can they. But our students in the evenings are becoming musicians. Mm -hmm. They're learning to sing, to record, yep. to play instruments, and to compose music. And uh, it's kind of fun. I have a hobby. I like to record music. And I have had, I actually started a commercial recording studio when I was a college student, because I love recording, I love music. But we still have a studio here. And so uh, it's interesting. I think that music makes Science more fun. And I think it's neat that we have both. Brings up a question. Yeah. My hypothesis is yes, it must be so. <laughs> and the question is do you think she plays any musical instruments? I don't know about that. What do you play? Play the piano. Yes, she does. Very well. When you come visit her, make sure she plays the piano for you. <laughs> and, play for everybody. <laughs> and she has a song that okay. you want to hear. Right. <laughs> it's a, an amazing song. It, as you listen to it, it pulls you in a little bit, and then it pulls you more, and then you get completely sucked in. You feel it so much, then it quits. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> it's my unfinished song. <laughs> she created half a song. I did. But it's, it's good. I could just stop right there and say it's the whole song. No, you really should finish it. What do you call it? I don't have a name for that song. Hmm. We could name it. If you have a suggestion of a name for her song, put it in the comments, okay? Oh, and we'll announce it next week. Do you want to tell them a little bit about it so they can have an idea of what to name it? No. <laughs> it's an unusual song. It's more like a pleading. It's more like a prayer. Sometime, we're going to have to talk about Bethany. Bethany is the name I gave to my piano. I should call the song that. 
Yeah, you should. Okay. Hey, Bethany. <laughs> yeah. Bethany is an amazing, amazing instrument. When I had my recording studio, I tried to find the very, very best piano I could afford. But as I studied pianos, I found out there's a legendary piano that was built back in the 1860s, 1870s, called a Steinway. And it was so good that the royalty, the kings and the princes and people all around the world ordered these beautiful Steinway pianos. And they got the soundboard, which is the part that radiates the sound into the room, out of one forest in Germany, special tree. Mm -hmm. And I always dreamed of someday having one of those Golden Age Steinways. And that's another story, but we're out of time. So till then, study hard. And yeah, if you're interested in music, go for it. Music's good. They want Da Vinci to be in the Eve Engineering Hall Really? Of have we got enough votes <laughs> yet? Now, we, we have a lot of people join us live, mm -hmm. but we have a bunch more that will be coming during this week. That's right. So we'll count all week and we'll announce next time. But uh, if you don't know about Da Vinci, look him up. He's really an interesting, colorful guy. And uh, some of you remember the Mona Lisa, which is probably the most valuable painting in the world, worth multiple billions of dollars, but a great scientist. And a polymath. Look him up. And a polymath. Mm -hmm. And I don't know what a polymath is. <laughs> I'm hoping that it's something good because she called me that the other day. <laughs> I did. Uh, see you next time. <laughs>